Welcome to the Legacy of John Williams podcast. I'm your host, Maurizio Caschetto, and this is a new installment of LA Studio Legends. My guest today is legendary flutist Sheridan Stokes. Sheridan Stokes is one of the most respected and talented studio musicians who ever worked in the film industry. He was hired as a piccolo player in the Denver Symphony when he was 16 years old and was the youngest contract musician in Hollywood at age 20, performing in the 20th Century Fox Orchestra under Alfred Newman. After a stint in the army, he returned in Los Angeles and started his career as a studio musician. He can be heard in thousands of film and television scores with many top Hollywood composers. With John Williams, he performed as principal flute in many schools, including The Tower in Inferno, Jaws, and E.T. the Extraterrestrial. He also premiered John Williams' Flute Concerto in 1973. In this conversation, Sheridan talks about his long and distinguished career as one of the greatest flutists in Hollywood and recollects his many collaboration with John Williams. I'm very happy to have here with me today at the Legacy of John Williams podcast, Mr. Sheridan Stokes. Sheridan, thank you very much for being here with me. Well, I'm very happy and honored to join with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. You are certainly a legend among studio musicians in Hollywood. And before starting to talk about your many collaborations with John Williams, um, I'd like to, to ask you about your musical background and formation, and what was the path that led you to become uh, the youngest contract musician in Hollywood and performing uh, in the 20th Century Fox Orchestra under Alfred Newman. So did you grow up in a musical household and how did you choose uh, flute as your main instrument? My father was a musician to start with. He was a clarinet player. And then he became the orchestra manager at the Hollywood Bowl with Leopold Stokowski. And so I grew up in the music business. My dad eventually became a member of the Los Angeles Philharmonic as a clarinet player. My whole life growing up was in the movie industry. I grew up in Burbank. People like Debbie Reynolds sat behind me and played the French horn. I met movie stars and I was in the movies from the time I was a little kid. I even sang in a movie called The Bishop's Wife and the Mitchell Boys Choir. My whole life has been involved in the movie industry. And luckily, because so many good musicians came to Hollywood from all over the world, I had was able to have the finest teachers. So from the time I was a little kid, I, I studied flute and piano. I learned to play the saxophone and the clarinet. I studied composition for years and uh, my first major job when I was 16 was to get was to play piccolo in the Denver Symphony, uh, which was quite an honor for me. I was a kid, you know. 
Anyway, then I went on the road with Amos Sumac when I was 18. And then by the time I was 20, I had a, had a contract with Alfred Newman at the 20th Century Fox Orchestra. And I was playing piccolo with the 20th Century Fox Orchestra. And the very first movie I was on was The King and I. After that, I was in Vegas at the time auditioning for the job. So I'd work in Vegas at night and fly into Fox during the day and record, and fly back to Vegas and work at night. That was during the audition period. Then they hired me as a regular contract member of the orchestra. At Fox, we did a lot of other movies, South Pacific, Anastasia, Boy on the Dolphin, a lot of movies in that two-year period. Contracts were up in '58, uh, and uh, as a funny thing, I got drafted in the army just after that. So I ended up in uh, Germany, and I played with the Seventh Army Symphony. And as a result, we played concerts all over Germany, and they flew us to Italy a couple of times. Wow! So I was able to play by uh, in Verona, Vicenza, Trieste, Firenze, Milano. So that that was my career. But it all started because I grew up in Burbank, in the middle of the movie industry. And my father was a musician. And that's a pretty impressive streak, I would say. Talking about the musical environment at 20th Century Fox in those years, I mean, that was certainly a very special place for musicians because uh, under the guidance of Alfred Newman, there were so many great composers, but also arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians in the orchestra. So, what can you tell me about uh, that magical environment? Uh, what kind of recollection do you have about Alfred Newman's musicianship? Well, when I got there, of course, I was only 20. And I, and I played pretty, some pretty good orchestras. But 
I couldn't believe the level of musicianship. The French horn player Vincent De Rosa was, was a, he's a legend in, in, uh, in his time, you know, and I was there for two years and I never heard him miss one note. Oh, atmosphere was just great, but it was music on the highest level. Young John Williams made his first steps in that same environment, uh, playing piano for many great composers and also playing under Alfred Newman as well. Um, so, when did you meet John for the first time? Uh, was it in the studio environment or was it somewhere else? The very first time I met him was through his friend Harold Hansen, who he'd been in the army with. Harold said, You got to meet my buddy from the army. So he took me over to John's house and he was living with his parents in the valley. And so I met him there and he, and I was about 21 and he's a couple of years, two or three years older than I am. That was the first time I met him. And then, you know, I'd, I'd see him around a, a little bit, but, but the, the, the first show I remember doing at Fox with them was lost in space. It was a, a TV show where he wrote, I think the, the, he wrote the score, probably the theme for it. After that, I really I didn't have much contact with him, but he used to come to the concerts with the Glendale Symphony. Glendale Symphony was like an orchestra in Los Angeles made up of studio players, a very good orchestra. And so he'd come to the uh, concert and he'd hear me play. And he, he, he sent me a note and asked me if I would, I would premiere his flute concerto, so, so which I did in 73. And then I started doing, doing his film work. Yeah, and, and that was before John Williams became the big star of film composers. I mean, it was before Jaws, before Star Wars. So he was already a respected film composer, of course, but he wasn't yet the big star. Um, so 
what were your first impressions of him as a musician and, and as a composer? So what struck you about his approach to music making? Well, as a composer, I, I found him very creative because he wrote this concerto for a flute that was, was quite different than movie music. So it showed that he could write any style he wanted to write. He was incredibly versatile. We performed the concerto and then he took me to dinner and I was sitting in his living room after dinner and I, I looked at him, I said, how do you write music? I figured, you know, who knows? And that's a logical question with somebody that good. And he just looked at me and he says, I don't know. He will answer because lots of people write because of formulas. They learn the Challenger system, they learn a certain kind of counterpoint, or they learn this or they learn that. But he was, he was very free and very felt very open with his sounds, and he was always experimenting, looking for new ideas and new sounds. That was my impression of him at the time. concerto um i mean it's a very atonal experimental piece i mean it's very daring to to a point but also it's very expressive so what do you remember about uh him talking to you about uh the piece i mean did he approach you looking for certain sounds a certain specific style of playing or things like that well, oddly enough, he never really said much of anything to me. He just turned it over to me and said, do what you want with it. But, but one, of, one of the things that I was good at was doing modern music. And I, I, I did all the modern music there on flute, basically, for the Monday evening concerts. And a lot of the composers used to come to Monday evening concerts. Stravinsky used to come and sit in the front row. Wow. I'd be looking down, playing a little chamber music, and there was Stravinsky's. And, and, but but I play very avant-garde music, and so although I was trained classically, I quickly got into avant-garde. So I took all this information, and then I then I would take a piece like John's, then I would decide what I wanted to do with it, and and use all the, the experimental techniques I had and the sounds and so forth to make it into an interesting work of music. So that was my approach. So he pretty well left me alone to just do it the way you want it, you know. I remember reading somewhere uh, about John being inspired by the shakuhachi, the Japanese flute, uh, to write the, the flute concerto. Yeah, I think he was, yeah. So do you remember any specific instruction in that regard that he might give you? Well, I mentioned it, but, you know, but he didn't tell me what to do. I mean, just we talked about it. But, uh, it's a certain kind, certain kind of sound, a kind of the way you bend the notes, the kind of vibrator you use. Mm-hmm. And you just have to listen to the shakuhachi a little bit to, to imitate it. Basically, that's what I do. I listen and I try to copy, you know. Did John conduct the world premiere of the piece or was uh, someone else? No, no, someone else. It was mainly Meta. He was the father of, of Zubin Meta, and he was the orchestra conductor at UCLA. So mainly Meta conducted it. Then later we did a performance with the Glendale Symphony 
at the Los Angeles Music Center of, of the concerto, and John conducted that. So he conducted the one at the Music Center. And, and, and the reason I played at the Music Center, I was playing with the Glendale Symphony, and uh, the conductor, Carmen Dragon, he said, you want to play a concerto with the orchestra? And I said, sure, I'd love to do that. And uh, he said, what do you want to play? And I said, well, I'll give, you a, I'll give you a choice. So I gave him four different concertos. He really didn't know what they were. He just listened to them. And out of the four concertos, he picked John's concerto. So the reason I played it with the Glendale Symphony at the Music Center uh, was because of Carmen's decision. He liked the piece the best. And then I asked John if he'd conduct. And he, and he graciously said he would. His wife had just died, and he was pretty upset. But I said, well, you don't have to. And he said, no, that's fine. I said, that'll be good for me. So, mm-hmm. And then since then, I've done it on several occasions. I did it in uh, San Diego in 2005 when I won the National Flute Association Award. And uh, it gave me a Lifetime Achievement Award at the National Flute Association. So I did the, the concert with the uh, San Diego Chamber Orchestra at the last minute, I had like four days notice, but I think it was probably the best performance I've ever done of it. I have a good recording of it. John sent me, I sent it to him, and he sent me a last note back saying how much he liked it. Was it uh, late 60s, uh, early 70s, when you started to perform uh, in film sessions with John? It was in the 70s, early 70s. Okay, and so do you remember anything about the, the scores that you performed with him and around that time? Because... I have a list of movies that you did with him in those years, and we have uh, things like uh, The Cowboys, The Tower in Inferno, The Poseidon Adventure. In all those scores, there's a lot of flute writing. Do you remember any specifics of those scores? Well, I remember the scores. They're, they're all very interesting. Uh, as far as what he wrote for me, he wrote me a big solo in a movie called The uh, uh, Witches of Eastwick. Oh, was it you? And it was, yeah, that was a long flute solo. It was sort of, sort of like, sounded like Davidson a little bit. It was very pretty.
And I remember things like Jaws, when we recorded Jaws at 20th Century Fox Studios. And uh, Spielberg was there. He walked around the stage with a life jacket on. And then we did, we did a little... Uh, little a, a, band, a high school band scene and Spielberg had played the clarinet when he was in high school so we gave him a clarinet and he sat behind me and sat in the wind section honking on the clarinet in the movie Jaws. And also you had a big, huge solo in the end credits. There is this beautiful lyrical uh, flute solo that plays as the film is closed. Yeah, it could be. I uh... I did so many, I can't remember one from another after a while. Also have some really lovely solos on E.T. the extraterrestrial as well. E.T. is full of beautiful lyrical flute solos. I mean, the film starts with a flute solo, and then the French horn comes in, and it's such a gorgeous way to to open a movie. specific story about uh, the E.T. sessions? Uh, you know, I, I don't too much, you know. The one thing that happens, I don't know if you know it, but when you're a performer, you focus so much on what you're doing in, in such great detail mm -hmm. that you don't remember it. It's, a, it's an odd thing to say, because you're so focused on what you're doing, in every detail, when it's over, you say, what happened? I don't know if that makes any sense or not. It, it I, I premiered a, a fluke concerto last year at the music center in Los Angeles from a German composer. And it was the same thing. I was so focused on the piece. I knew it went well, but I couldn't really remember anything about it. Plus, in those years, you were incredibly busy. I mean, you performed in hundreds, maybe thousands of film scores in those years. I mean, playing for such great composers uh, like John Williams and James Horner and John Barry and, and many others. Was working with John different or maybe more special than with any other composer? Well, I tell you what, they're all they're all very good, and they all but they all had their own ways about them. You know, the thing about John that I particularly liked was his he was experimental and tried 
try different things. But at the same time, he'd pick a theme or something that you remember. You know, some of the film composers, there were more special effects or they'd meander from one thing to the next. But John would pick something and really work it work it into a very integral part of the movie. So you would, you would help you remember the movie by the theme that he actually wrote. Mm-hmm. That's, that was more his style, I think, than any of the composers I know. Because I, I, I love the music of Maurice Jarre. I did all his pictures. James Horner, I did all sorts of pictures with him. They're all very good. But the thing about John, he took something and, and worked it, and, and, and it was so... It made it made made you remember the movie if you heard the music. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I talked with Jim Walker, your flutist colleague, uh, who also performed a lot with, with John over the years. I also plan to speak soon, I hope, with Luis de Tullio, who was John's principal for, for many years. So how was the work in the section uh, between you guys? How, how did you split the work? Uh, uh, was John always deciding who was playing principal versus you know piccolo or second flute and so on? That was his decision, you know. I played principal flute for quite a few years for him. Uh, then Luis played principal for quite a few years. Yeah. And uh, it was his decision, whatever he wanted to do, you know. I think Jimmy Walker probably did, too. I, I don't know which movies he worked on. but And before before I was there, he, Arthur Glacorn used to, to work for John. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was probably, probably the th- Arthur, then me, and then Luis. It was in, in that order. Was there any special sense of uh, community or even camaraderie between you uh, guys in the section? Uh, how was working together? Because I guess it was, and it's pretty different than it is uh, nowadays, where you mostly perform stuff, you know, isolated or not, not with the whole band, but uh, in separate groups and so on. Yeah, right. um, well, that's, that's, that's a shame because... You have no sense of music anymore, no sense of an ensemble or anything. Your creativity is gone. It's it's really it's really a terrible shame. Mm. Well, we worked together. We worked together as a team, and whatever differences we had, which weren't very many, we we all basically got along. But when we worked together, we were a real team. We really helped each other out to make the end product sound good mm-hmm. and sound sound interesting too, not just good. Yeah. So I would say that spirit was always there. No matter what what was going on, whether whether we had problems somewhere else, when we got to the studio, we really worked together. Mm-hmm. 
that's fantastic. I mean, it's pretty impressive to to notice how much of a great orchestrator he is. Not just a great melodist, a great uh, writer of tunes, but also a great arranger and orchestrator. I mean, he wrote so many beautiful solo parts for virtually every instrument. I mean, flute, uh, violin, French horn, offering to a lot of you studio musicians uh, an opportunity to shine. And in this sense, do you think he got much from the generation of the Steiner, Korngold, Newman, uh, you know, the great Hollywood composers that really invented the Hollywood sound? So do you think he's a kind of a natural heir of that generation? Well, yeah, you know, I think what he did is he, they were a little bit before him, and he took from all of them, and he really put it into something that was amazing. And uh, you could hear bits and pieces of all these composers. They all sort of stole from each other, you know, in a way. Stealing is the wrong word, but, but they all listened to each other and, and used each other's abilities, you know. So you could hear John's music. Of, he, he listened. And he heard something he liked. I'm sure he heard something that Steiner wrote or, or Newman or somebody else, you know. But you see what I mean? They learn from each other. is, in your opinion, uh, the background of John being a studio musician and a great piano player as well. Um, so do you think that was very important in the, uh, in his formation, in becoming a great uh, film composer? His dad, you know, was a percussionist and drummer at Columbia Pictures. And uh, so he grew up in the movie industry. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the piano playing helped. And John was a good pianist. So it all added up. It just—it was part of the big picture, you know. Besides John Williams, uh, are there any other film composers with whom you really enjoyed to perform with? Well, it's different. I—I uh, I was doing a solo at the Hollywood Bowl back in the uh, '60s, and uh, a piece by Pierre Boulez, "Explosante Freaks," it was called, wow. and they put me on a little platform in the bowl. And with several others, but I had my own little podium out there in the bowl, and I started this this uh, piece with a ten minute flute solo. But the solo went through some weird instrument imported from Germany, where they changed the sound all around. Mm. So I didn't know what it really was going to sound like after I played it. Anyway, after the show, uh, Lalo Schifrin came back to say hello to me, and I said, "Oh, hi, Lalo." And I knew who he was, but I said. Uh, I'm glad to meet you. And I said, I've just written a book on special effects for flute, and I'd like to give it to you. So I gave him the book, and uh, he immediately hired me on one of his movies. And then he, he had about six flute players there, and he wanted them to all use these special effects. Most musicians are not very uh, adventuresome, and they sort of balked, and they didn't want to do it. And uh, he said, well, you tell them what to do. Well, they, us, we're having trouble. Anyway, after that, I did all his work. And, and the biggest thing I did was Mission Impossible, oh, yes. where I played the flute solo. 
But I changed it around. He wrote it, and I changed it around. And I, I, and I started with no vibrato, and then I added a lot of vibrato on the beginning. Da-da-da! it to make it sort of different and interesting just to see what his reaction was and he loved it and after that I worked on all of those pictures and then we did a picture back in I think it was around 2008 or it wasn't that long ago Fresh Hour 3 that's what it was Okay. and yes. there was a scene with some little kids and, and they were sword fighting in, 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 in Japan and uh, Brett Ratner, he didn't like what Lalo, Lalo wrote. So <clears throat> Lalo comes out of the booth and he looks at me and he says, improvise something. I said, what? He said, yeah. First I asked Lalo, I said, what do you want me to do? He says, you know what to do. So I said, fine. So I got a little pentatonic scale and I improvised something on the recorder. And we recorded it. And Lalo said, that's great. Fine. I said, you want it again? No. <laughs> and then there was a little lady in the violin section who grew up in Beijing. And she said, that sounded very authentic. I said, it did? Because I was just making it up, you know. <laughs> but it was a, that's the sort of thing Lalo depended upon me. Now, whatever he wrote, he wrote something once where he wanted me to sound like a shakuhachi. And I said, well, I don't have one. I said, I said, but I can make the flute sound like one. He said, you can. It's because it's acoustically the same as a, a shakuhachi. So, so I had a lot of fun with Lalo. We we're, were good friends. And when I did my, my final farewell recital in my retirement at UCLA. I had Lalo come and give a little talk at the, uh, at the recital. So he was one. Then Maurice Jar, he wrote a lot of beautiful stuff for me, and uh, and then it was a, James Horner wrote all very creative and very inventive. I really enjoyed a lot of the stuff he did. And instead, speaking of John Williams as a conductor, uh, so how did you see him um, as a conductor in the studio? How was his conducting style? The thing about John is he was very, very uh, detailed in his conducting. He, he, you could tell when he was conducting. He wanted everything a certain way, and he, was, he kept trying to, to conduct in a way where you knew exactly what he wanted. So I, I thought he did an excellent job. 
because most of the movie conductors, they just beat time, you know. But he was he was very much into all the details of the music. And also, many of your colleagues uh, told me about how he never uses a click track, save maybe for for the occasional action cue where he had to time very precisely uh, uh, the music to, to the picture. But otherwise, he, he likes to, to free conduct, you know. Maybe he uses the the streamer, but otherwise uh, he prefers to to conduct without a click. But that's the way Alfred Newman was. Alfred Newman invented uh, click tracks and the way to way to and ways to do it. But he didn't invent it. But he used, used a click track. But at the same time, he would rehearse a piece, a main title, say all day long, and then we recorded it at the end of the day. But 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 it was all conducted and all very detailed and. Uh, So that's Alfred Newman did that, and and so basically that's and that's where we, where we got we got all our ideas from Newman. He was amazing, you know. But but that's what John did. He he did a lot of his own conducting because he wanted the the freedom to express himself when he conducted. You know. Did you notice any changes in John's uh, conducting style after he uh, went to Boston to conduct the the, the Boston Pops Orchestra in 1980? Uh, do you think that uh, helped him to become a better conductor? Well, I think what happened is when you're conducting a big orchestra like that uh, and talks to different kinds of music, you become uh, more expansive. In other words, you, you make, make sure that everybody understands with broader emotions what you're doing. It's easy on, you know, on a film score to be a little very detailed, and it doesn't matter because that's all that's required. But when you're conducting a big orchestra, you have to be become more expansive. So, so I'm sure that that's probably what he got from it. the use of the flute that John does in his film scores. Uh, do you remember if he gave you some very difficult virtuosic parts? You know, he often writes for the instrument given uh, many flourishes or quick scales or piccolo rounds and things like that and very, very hard, and I guess, to play. Uh, so do you remember any very difficult music that you had to perform on the spot for him? John always wrote very difficult parts. He always wrote difficult things. In fact, when I first did the launch in space, which was in the 60s, early 60s, uh, which I went out to lunch with a, uh, Abe Most. He was a clarinet player at Fox. And we had a couple of drinks and we came back. We didn't think there was anything to do. And we got this horrendous piccolo part with notes all over the page. I thought, oh my God. But that was typical of John. To write a lot of notes and it was a lot of fun 
because it was a real challenge, you know. And you, studio musicians, have to be always uh, in great shape to to perform on the spot. I mean, some very tough uh, music. I mean, uh, maybe one day you have the most boring uh, part ever to perform, and while the next minutes you have to bring out the best out of you because you have to perform a very, very complicated solo. Well, so, we had a saying in the business, either you're bored to death or you're scared to death. <laughs> that's, that's, very, like, that's a very apt description, I would say. I'd like to ask you about your career as a teacher. Uh, how important that is to you for your musical life? Well, it was very important to me because I had some pretty good teachers when I was young. But it wasn't until I got to the third flute teacher that I just suddenly learned in a period of six months, I learned so quickly that I realized how important teaching was. And so I always wanted to uh, do a little teaching. Luis Dottilio's dad was over at the house one day Uh, he and my father were friends, and my father was an orchestra manager, and Joe was over, Joe DiTullio. And I was going I was going on and on about my teacher at the time, uh, Hokenberg. And uh, Joe says, well, I got this daughter. Could she take a couple of lessons from you? And she was 12 years old. I said, sure, send her over. I never taught before. Well, it was Louise DiTullio. So she came over and studied with me for a couple of years. And then I, I was working in Vegas, so I sent her to my flute teacher, who I just adored. So that was the beginning of my teaching career. And I gave a few lessons, not a lot, but I wrote a book called Illustrated Method for Flute, where I used a lot of scientific data in the book. I got sound waves and how the muscles worked, how vibrato worked, etc. And uh, there's an opening at UCLA. I thought, I'm going to try to get that job because teaching fascinates me. And I'm a little bored with the studio work. Studio work was fine and paid well and a lot of wonderful players, but I, I needed something else to do. So I applied for the UCLA job, and I got it by one vote. But uh, anyway, I did. I was there for 45 years as a teacher, and it was very, very rewarding. I had a lot of wonderful students. Some of them uh, went into the movie industry, became players, and some of them went into symphonies. Some of them became lawyers. You never knew what they were going to do. But it was very rewarding for me to to be a, uh, a teacher. And this is something I'm seeing in a lot of uh, other musicians who I talk to. I mean, the, the importance of giving back to the next generation, to the younger uh, people. 
Some Trump didn't like to teach, but Jimmy Walker gave back. He's been at SC for a long time. Yeah, quite a few of them do teach, but some don't like to teach at all. You know, it just just depends. Depends on, on you know, what's what's important and what you want to do. What do you think will be John's legacy, uh, especially among musicians in Hollywood? He's very highly respected among the musicians in Hollywood. And uh, uh, we've always really enjoyed playing for him. And at the same time, we always knew we had to do a good job. Maybe he, he required a high standard, which, which I always loved. I, I, I really like people with high standards. A lot of the a lot of the movies, things we did, they just cranked them out was one after another. But he was very detailed and he had a high standard. And he was always that way from the very beginning. And so I think if there's anything I appreciated, that was it. That he demanded to, of himself and of everybody else a very extremely high standard of performance. And he was always a nice guy. He was always very fair. He wasn't, you know, like some of them were sort of temperamental. And he wasn't. He was just a very professional and did a wonderful job. Yes, and he is also very respectful of the musicians. I mean, uh, he can give you a very interesting parts, but he also knows that uh, you have to bring the best out of you to, to you know, to give um, an excellent performance. Yes, he was demanding, but we all like that, you know. You prefer somebody who wants the highest standard. Uh, and, he had, and, he, and he did respect good musicians, a guy like Al Lutzgarten, who worked for him for years. Or, well, there's a whole bunch of them that he really respected. have any special memory or maybe some uh, fun anecdote that you want to share about working with John over the years? I remember that when we were doing Jaws and he wrote that famous theme from Jaws, but he'd never heard it before. And then we uh, we, we rehearsed it and, and I could see a funny look coming on his face when he actually heard what he wrote. And I think he was very pleased with himself to, to see how that came out because that, that was an incredible Incredible uh, cue that he wrote for Jaws. That's the thing John was good at. You know, he could he could pick up any style he wanted. But yeah. I think that was part of who he was. He he was always looking for something new, something creative.
Well, it was a pleasure to work with him all those years, and I was very honored that he asked me to to premiere his flute concerto, and, and I've always liked him, and and we were we've always been good friends, and having known him for a long time, because I met him in 1957 originally, and he, basically he's he's the same person. He hasn't he hasn't changed. He's no, you know, you think with all the success he would have changed, but he started just like I met him when when he was 24. You know, so I I do respect that a lot. He likes to conduct this life of really uh, devoted to music. I mean, it's a life devoted to music. He uh, gets up in the morning and writes something every day, even if it's not a movie or maybe it's a concert piece. That's right. He, well, he's, he is who he is. And, uh, because of his enormous success, he didn't change. He's the same person. He didn't have these ups and downs like a lot of these film composers have. He was just himself, that's all. to thank you for uh, spending some time with me talking about your work with John Williams. I want to thank you for interviewing me because you've asked all sorts of wonderful questions. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for, for your kind words, uh, Sheridan. Uh, I always love to talk with, with musicians because I think that especially studio musicians are really the, the unsung heroes uh, in, in film music. You performed in so many music that is still beloved by uh, billions of people and, and billions of people heard your the, the playing, your, your fabulous playing that many of you have, uh, you know, graced movies with. And um, so I think it's very important to, to put a spotlight on, on musicians, especially the great Los Angeles studio musicians. Yeah, well, there's the, well I was very humbled when I, when I got into the Fox Orchestra. I couldn't believe how good everybody was. I mean, it just, it just amazed me. And then after that, playing in all sorts of movies, I would hear things that just astounded me as to how good these players were. And so I, I never, you know, you, can, you cannot have an ego when you're in the movie business. The players are just too good, you know? And, and what a life. I mean, it's uh, like you, you've been part of movie history and also music history because, I mean, the level of, of the collaboration that you had over the years, it's just incredible and astounding well and i and i and i take it all seriously I, to me it's part of my life and so it's very important to me you know it didn't matter what kind of a job where i played what i did it's all important i think that it's a perfect uh summation of of the life of the devoted musicians absolutely yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, well, many thanks. I yeah. love talking to you. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. Thanks to Sheridan Stokes for his time and generosity. Visit thelegacyofjohnwilliams.com for more articles and interviews. Thank you for listening. Until the next episode of The Legacy of John Williams podcast.